Thank you. You know it's a bad sign when a third of you came with your carry-on luggage to this final convocation. Uh, I feel, uh, I think we've already lost you a little bit, and I, I get that. Something psychologically happens when you check out and you pack up. Uh, a lot of you have days filled with travel. I'd like to begin by kind of talking a little bit about my own institution. So I'm a part of George Fox University. George Fox is a Quaker. And I came in as a Presbyterian. I'm still a Presbyterian. But in my 11 years at George Fox, I've appreciated a lot of practices and values that the Quakers have shown me, have modeled for me. And I would like to introduce one to you right now, uh, just as a moment. Uh, I'm gonna force you to do something that you're really bad at. You're really bad at this. And this is uh, a double negative, so I'll say this carefully. You are bad at being unproductive as preachers. You're actually, and Quakers are actually pretty cool with that, which is, which is beautiful. Uh, especially certain denominations, there's some intrinsic pressure to just achieve, accomplish, produce, and not in a space that we give ourselves to just be present. And so what I wanna do to begin, and I'm not super ambitious for this morning, but what I would love to do is just enter a, a practice of centering where we will follow something I've learned from the Quakers, and that's silence. And a silence is not prayer necessarily, it's just a centering to open yourself up to what God has for you today. And so for some of you, this is gonna be extremely uncomfortable. It's actually not gonna be that long, they'll just do a few minutes. Uh, some of you, it's gonna be extremely uncomfortable. I just ask that you kind of roll with it. And so uh, we'll have a period, um, just a few minutes. Uh, we're gonna invite you to close your eyes and empty yourself and just to make yourself present for this moment. And so, let us pray. I will close us in a few minutes, and um, let's enjoy and embrace the silence and contemplation. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for all the hospitality that we have received, and we ask for your traveling mercies. Amen. I'd invite you to just take a little moment and answer this question. What was the most important thing that you learned this week? And to write this down, I'm not gonna ask you to share it, but I want you to enter a reflective space on your time here. And something not to overthink, your first reaction is probably right. What was the most important thing that you learned this week? Go ahead and take a minute and consider that. So when biblical scholars write books, we do so with stacks of tomes, commentaries and grammars and lexicons uh, we do with a computer where we're always JSTORing different random articles on really random phrases in random verses that you would never preach on. Uh, it's, it's a very solitary exercise sometimes. Uh, and in fact, most biblical scholars are very introverted and they, they love that. And, and I love that too. But it's been a real treat to engage all that time that I've done with a community of preachers. And I was very honest, I have an agenda for you. I share this with you, son. I want you to preach on these texts. I think there's something in this theology that is unique to the entire canon. And I think that uh, congregations need this. They need to hear this dialogue. I fronted this whole week, all these convocations with the idea of repatriation. And it begins with my own journey. 
And I'm hoping that you get the understanding that a repatriation or return to a land happens constantly throughout history in micro ways, in major ways as well with a whole people group, as it does with Ezra Nehemiah. I hope you could also understand that repatriation is shown and told and portrayed and articulated in very different ways. I want to show you a painting. This is uh, hanging in uh, Washington, D.C. at the, um, the, the National Gallery of Art. This is George Catlin. Uh, he painted this in the mid-19th century, early-ish 19th century. And uh, the name of this is Pigeon's Egghead in the Light, which is the name of uh, this individual, Native American name and translation. And on the left, you see him in his regalia, and he's departing for Washington. And you see in the background uh, a, a, a contemporary building. And he's dressed fully in his Native gear. And, and the story is, uh, Catlin ran into this man in around St. Louis on the way to Washington. On the right, you see the same man returning to the tribe and you see how he's changed. And you can't really see the detail that well, but you can look at the clothing. You could look at there's actually a bottle of alcohol that he has in the pocket. And you see in the background returning to his tribe. And you can imagine what happens when Pigeon's Egghead in the Light returns to the native tribe after being in Washington, DC for an extended time, for a whole winter. And so the story is told, the painting is portrayed in different ways. And so what was told is that he returned, this person returned to the tribe, and the tribe told them he has a white man's magic. And so they tried to test the white man's magic by shooting him, and he died. And so that's the story that's told about this encounter, about this repatriation. I hope you understand also in Ezra Nehemiah, it's such an incredibly complex text theologically. And so in history, there are tons of scholars that reconstruct, it probably started with this, the Nehemiah memoir, then the Ezra memoir, then their letters added, and there's a redaction here, then the, uh, the Persian period ends, they add this as what. Well. There's this long textual history, it wasn't written in one big shot. Um, and that's, that's probably pretty true. But what that does, it adds a very complex layer of theology upon this. So in this painting, there's a story, but there's also a subtext that that historical account of this person returning and being shot when they're testing the white man's magic might not be totally true, but in fact, some think that this was fabricated in order to justify the decimation of Native American tribes. It was part of their portrayal of their savagery and what they would do. Either way, you see a story of return that's repeated over and over again, coming back to a land and coming with conflict and some of the things that go alongside with that. So when you have a repatriation, you're forced to think about a theology that exists in that repatriate space. And so I tried to explain to you that every repatriation comes with trauma and crisis. It comes with an unsettled expectation. It comes with high hopes that will be disappointed and surely if you look at Ezra, from the very beginning, there's a lot of crying. There's like there's a ton of crying in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's weeping. But we know that the God of Ezra and Nehemiah walks alongside in trauma and cry. It doesn't necessarily solve anything, at least explicitly, but at least God is there and present. 
We know that a repatriation often is coerced and forced by political circumstances. And so there's a new context to power in any social displacement. And I hope that I can convince you that the God of Ezra Nehemiah holds more power than the empire. Remember that picture of the Persian Empire? It's vast. The territory, the territory they control is very deep. It's the greatest empire the world had known up to that point. And yet God holds more power. And I talked about Ezra Nehemiah as a subversive text, where ultimately the power is in written Torah, owned by God, and not in the Persian Empire. Within any return, there's a forcing of forging a new identity, an identity that's constantly negotiated and renegotiated over and over again. Identity that's who you are as portrayed by yourself and perceived by others. Identity that is composite, make up of very different elements. Therefore, you have this constant renegotiation. And that God builds a community from shared experience and obedience, that this is the core of who we are. No matter when you came back, gender, class, like you experienced the exile together, and you're committed to an obedience, obedience to Torah, not to the Persian Empire. Who is this God of Ezra Nehemiah? So we look at the text, and uh, you find something very different in this God. So in a repatriate space, I think what emerged in Ezra Nehemiah was a much, much different type of portrayal of God. They had to renegotiate who God was. And so one way that I kind of think through this is the divine presence and divine absence in Ezra Nehemiah. And so Ezekiel has something that kind of helps us understand divine absence in Ezra Nehemiah. It comes with a really surprising line. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, meaning the temple, and stood over the cherubim. So the presence of the Lord actually left. It actually left the temple, and uh, which is weird because God promised it would be everlasting, and they thought it'd be everlasting. And so what happened was you have a renegotiation of who God is. I shared earlier about the God who acts, and so there are really three landmark biblical theologies, kind of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament theologies of the 20th century. The God who acts by Genus Wright, uh, there's a, a biblical theology by a guy named Gerhard von Rod. You probably read if you came here. Uh, Ike wrote, wrote another Old Testament theology. These three theologies, how much attention did they pay to, to Ezra Nehemiah? Hardly anything. And if you think, well, that's just the 20th century. Things are totally different. One of the most influential theologies of today was written by Walter Brueggemann. There are like two references to Ezra Nehemiah. There are 50 times more references to the last two chapters of Genesis than there are entirely to Ezra Nehemiah. And part of this is there was an attraction to a God that does all these fantastic things that is very explicit, that is very powerful, that is very sovereign, that is the God who acts. And here in Ezra Nehemiah, you have a very different God, a God who acted, the God who acts through others, but God in the present doesn't act as much. And you know what, that makes sense for a socially displaced community because you see behind you, in front of you, and to the side of you, a powerful polity, that's the Persians, and not necessarily God. It forces you to reformulate your picture of who God is. This emerges one way in something called name theology, and you see this in Ezra Nehemiah, you see this also in Chronicles. And so what happens is, as you're trying to make theological sense, 
of the God who, um, of exile and post-exile, a God of a destroyed temple and an ended Davidic line, you start to make different changes in theology. And one example is the emergence of name theology. You see this in Nehemiah here. And this is the idea that it isn't God, but God's name. And so there's a difference. And so one example is Nehemiah 1.9, the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And there's a difference, the place that I've chosen to dwell there. It's not God's dwelling, but a manifestation of God somehow through the name of God. Blessed be your glorious name, who is, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Uh, a, a name of glory or maybe honor or weightiness. Uh, so what's really fascinating about these two verses, the word dwell, it's a pretty common v verb. Uh, it's one of the top 12 in Hebrew verbs in terms of just usage in the Old Testament. This is the only appearance in all of Ezra Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1, 9. The word for glorious or honor or weighty, kabod, uh, again, probably one of the top 20 words in Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. This is its only appearance in all of Ezra Nehemiah. And so you look at Ezra Nehemiah, you don't see the typical expressions of God. There's no cloud. There's no reference to the ark. There's no reference to cherubim. God, the presence just isn't there. So more than the divine presence, you almost have a divine absence in Ezra Nehemiah. You also see this in the Bible, but also outside of the Bible as well. So if you think about biblical names like Jeremiah, Isaiah, you have the Yahweh called a theophoric element, a suffix, which says uh, God um, is merciful, for example, in, in Jeremiah. And so what happens during this time, there, all those economic documents, uh, so we actually have names from this time. And we don't have ideological texts, but the names say something, right? And so during this time, you get the disappearance of the theophoric Yah in names. You get Semitic names that it's, almost, it's too sacred to put inside the name. And so you get this transformation from rather than talking about God, you talk about God's name. And because you're talking about God's name, you don't want to actually put this in the name of a human. And this continues throughout Jewish interpretation, right? You don't say the divine name when you read the scripture. Uh, you say, for some, Hashem, the name. And now, sometimes you don't even want to write the name. And so in Hebrew, for modern Jewish communities, you might write the Hebrew letter for hey, the, the H sound, instead of doing writing the name. And so you get this kind of aspect of, well, that makes sense, because it wasn't God that was defeated. It was the name of God, an extension of God that was abandoned instead. It's a way to try to make sense of the, and the lesson here is not name theology, but when you're socially displaced and your ex expectations are unmet, you need to kind of think of how that works theolo theologically. And the connection to you is times when God isn't anything what you thought God would be. When you imagine that God had a life for you and it is shattered, it is nothing like in, in both positive and negative ways, but it's more emotional when it's in negative ways, when there is a vision. What do you know now that you didn't know 10 years ago that would have shocked you about God? And here in Ezra Nehemiah, you have a model for trying to create theology from that, that God, because I would argue that God is still there, 
just much more muted. So remember this verb study on verse. So there are 103 action verbs attributed to God in Ezra and Nehemiah. Two-thirds of them are in the past tense. So God might have done something great, but not now. Uh, about a third of them don't refer to God directly, but God in the construct chain, which that means like the hand of God, something like that. A few of them are what we call fossilized expressions, where there's God delivered, but it's just an expression rather than something they're talking about right now. And that appears a couple of times in Nehemiah 4. Of those 103, 55 of them are in one chapter, Nehemiah 9. And it's all about the past tense, what God had done far in the, like hundreds of years ago. And so it's important because you see God is taking kind of a different appearance for the people, the repatriates, because the temple is down, it's constructed, but it's a shadow of its former self. So you heard a narrative about this great temple. It doesn't look like a great temple. For a lot of the community, the wall is broken. It's finally put together, but the city is still nothing compared to what it was before the exile. How do you make sense of that God? What do you do without God? Throughout the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you don't have the active verbs, but you do have periods of time where Ezra and Nehemiah attribute things to God. One example is on their trip back from uh, Babylon to, to Judah, they, they want to ask for protection, but they're worried that uh, how, God will, how God will be perceived if they ask for protection. So within there, I don't think God ever abandons them. God's there, but just in very, very different ways than they expected. So you have in Nehemiah 9 this really amazing text which talks about how we are to pray in light of these... Um, what I would call understandings, manifestations of God in a much more absent way. Okay. All right. So Nehemiah 9, I mentioned yesterday, this is the longest prayer in the Bible in the Old Testament outside the Psalms. And what we know about Nehemiah 9 is we all know about lament psalms. And so the reality that half the psalms are laments, half the psalms kind of recognize uh, trouble, they acknowledge uh, distress, they make it part of their liturgical practice of community. Remember that these psalms are, um, you know, the whole idea of reading by yourself is, is a very modern idea. Uh, because of the lack of literacy, the lack of access, uh, reading texts was something to be done in community, in the scope of worship. And so when you do these together in worship, it's very re reflective of the community. And with Nehemiah 9, as well as Ezra 9, as well as Nehemiah 1, you have emergence of a different genre of prayer. And so the idea is we actually have prayers from the Psalms, and we have the prayers of later Psalms, which would be the last third of the Psalter, we also have prayers in the Septuagint, prayers in the Dead Sea Scroll. So we can actually construct a diachronic history of the type of psalms that are emerging, that are being textualized. And right here in Ezra and Nehemiah, we have uh, the emergence of a new type of prayer that is not there just once in Nehemiah 9, but also in Ezra 1 and, um, I'm sorry, Nehemiah 1 and Ezra 9. And this is called a penitential psalm a penitential psalm. So it's kind of built on the idea of lament, but this is a reflex of their, their circumstance and repatriation. 
And so what do we know about a penitential psalm? And so it actually begins with deep penance, and they never actually blame themselves, but they blame their ancestors. And so this is a challenging thing for us to think about because when we do something wrong, that's hard for us to confess. But if our parents do something wrong, we're actually critical of your owning the sins of your ancestors. And think about whoever you are, whatever your social context, your social location. What if you're to really own the sins of your ancestors in meaningful way? And so what the, this penitential psalms do, they have long narratives of what God has done in the past. Long confession, owning your circumstance is based on the sins of your ancestors. And then you have this resolve to be right with God, to determine. So I just want to read this. This is longer than I like to read generally, but uh, this is kind of the, the culmination of this psalm. Remember all those active verbs? We just did them already. And now this is what we, we have a result of. The other thing I should notice about Nehemiah 9, uh, the context within Ezra and Nehemiah. You finish, you came back, you finish the, the, the altar, you finish the temple, you finish the, the walls, you have another census, you have a Torah reading ceremony, and now you have this great prayer. All those things lead you to this prayer. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. This is phenomenal because, remember, God feels very absent. God needs to be redefined. And it was the, the recollection of history as a community in prayer that brings you back to acknowledge that God is great, mighty, and awesome, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the, day, the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in your own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you have gave them, and in the large and rich land that you have set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, all our slaves this day. Um, should be all our slaves this day. In, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So this prayer then formulates and surrounds, typically in the Lament Psalms, and this is what makes this genre really different, the Lament Psalms often will call to God call the call God's promises. Nehemiah 9 calls on oneself. It calls, and we will do these things. We will do these things. We will do all these ratifications of the covenant. This is really fascinating. In the time of repatriation and reformulating power, you're calling on God's past, but you're calling on yourself more in the present than you actually are invoking God in this prayer. I'm not sure what to make of this, actually, theologically, because they're in a marginalized space. What to do and to think through this. What I will share with you is that uh, this prayer took off. So after Ezra Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah, uh, it had to have been written, finished no earlier 
than um, the fourth century, but most people actually think it was finished in the, the, after the time of Alexander. And so you have this time of repatriation. You have perhaps a vision that the Persians will be defeated and you'll have independence. But in fact, after the Persians were defeated, for a couple of thousand years, uh, the people of Judah were under um, the context of a greater empire, whether the Greeks or later the Ptolemies or the Romans. Um, you know, it continually was under subjugation. And what that did was create this uh, interpretive reading of Ezra Nehemiah that uh, people saw the text, they saw the God of Ezra Nehemiah, and it was meaningful for them. And so the interpretive history is something I want to finish off with because you are part of that interpretive history. You are part of that as well. The very beginning, from early on, First Esdras is a Greek version, and it essentially takes major portions of Ezra Nehemiah, mostly Ezra and Nehemiah 8, uh, that great Torah ratification, and they add these different kind of wisdom-like stories to this. And so this is in the canon for the Eastern Orthodox Church, not in Protestant churches or the vast majority of Protestant churches or the Catholic Church, but somehow in probably either the first century BC or the, the first century CE, uh, this text was written down and combined with new wisdom stories to talk about how to live in the midst of empire. How can we formulate God in the midst of oppression? Second Esdras is also a combination of different parts of Ezra Nehemiah but they introduce these major apocalyptic sections. Some of these are Jewish, some of these are Christian, and some of these are under dispute. And in fact, it's hard to understand the New Testament arose from a, a Jewish context, so it's really hard to understand and delineate between the two. But again, and these are very um, apocalyptic. So during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they didn't really have apocalyptic as a genre. It begins to emerge a little bit in Ezekiel, a little bit in Daniel, uh, but a lot of the language we use is proto-apocalyptic, having forms but not fully embracing that genre. But Second Ezra is written during the time of uh, the flourishing of apocalyptic literature. And so all these, and apocalyptic literature is very anti-imperial, right? Uh, all this vision about how we will defeat the throne through this otherworldly sense. You have rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, so with the fall of the Second Temple in AD 70, uh, there was a scattering, and one branch, like Judaism was very multifaceted, and then with the fall of the Temple, uh, Judaism that formalized oral law kind of emerged because they didn't need the Temple. And so you could see how rabbinic Judaism embraced some of the theology of Ezra and Nehemiah because of the prominence of Torah. And so Torah became the foundation, and Ezra and Nehemiah provides a theology of how you can exist in empire in which it's actually, you don't need Jerusalem, you need Torah more than you need Jerusalem. So even in diaspora, you can be faithful if you are obedient to Torah. The connection with Ezra and Nehemiah and Judaism is so so strong, like even at this time, they recognize this. There is uh, early Jewish texts where they say Ezra received the law, or Ezra was worthy of the law if Moses had not received it. Or uh, in modern thought, you get thought that Ezra is the foundation of modern Judaism because the attention to Torah as a written artifact. You also get this in the early church. 
And you can probably guess between Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra was more proclaimed in the early church in both positive and negative ways. One way is through also the centrality of text as authoritative, the ability to live and think about Christianity as a, as a religion before it was official. It was a religion of the diaspora. It was a religion without official state sponsorship for the first three centuries. And with Ezra, it was said that it was a text that brought authenticity, but also uh, the, the patristics were against Ezra because uh, the Marcionite tendencies in the early church that they decried against Ezra and called him um, lying, fabricating, false, and so a, a mixed interpretation. One more I'll put down because Bede of the eighth century, and, and so Bede, uh, medieval, important medieval theologian, Bede wrote the first commentary, the critical commentary on Ezra Nehemiah. And a lot of biblical scholars look at this, and so Bede had allegorical interpretation. They'll look at this as uncritical, um, not of great value. But if you look at Bede, he's trying to understand. So he was uh, basically living a monastic life, but was in touch with the church and with government and trying to look at Ezra Nehemiah as a way that how can bodies of faith live with government as well. Um, I, I think it's actually a very verse by verse. It is allegorical, but the greater scheme, this is the third of three books that Bede wrote. I think there's a really... Uh, a, a really learned exploration and how we are to live as a religion in the midst of greater polities. You continue this interpretive history. You as preachers, you have this encounter with a body of faith every week. And in this body of faith, you have people that understand the repatriation. I would argue, remember I have an agenda for you. I really want you to preach from this somehow to your community. And I would argue that preaching from Ezra Nehemiah, the best preparation, this week was great, it was incredible, but the best pr preparation was experiences in your life when you experienced uh, questioning power, questioning your identity, thinking through your own traumatic experiences. Those are the ones that are connect you to the text, and those are the experiences that are connect the text to your congregation. Even though you yourself might not have a very direct, prolonged, extended social displacement, the text does. And you probably have had crisis in your life. You probably have had experiences where God has disappointed you, where God feels very distant, and yet you still have faith, and yet you still showed up here. And you are in front of the pulpit every week trying to explain to another community. There's one time in my pastoral life where uh, I was seminary student writing papers in theology and on Fridays through Sundays constantly doing church stuff. Uh, and I was the one, like within the church, in, in my section of the church, it was a big church, but we had our own, um, I was part of the English language worship and, and I was the one that turned on the lights as I got in on Sunday morning. And uh, you could think about the toll that would take. And about, mid about midway through the pastorate, the three years, uh, I remember talking and welcoming the congregation. Um, I was 25 in a big Korean church, and I had this Presbyterian robe that looked like a parachute with a hole cut out with my neck going through. And I remember welcoming, and I was saying all these platitudes of, uh, you know, that you say sometimes when you welcome the congregation. And I just remember thinking, uh, 
and I just said, you know, I want to, if, if you are in a space where you're not sure about God, if you're in a space of frustration and questioning, if you're in a space where your heart isn't in worship, I said, like, you know, I welcome you too. I welcome you too. And after service, uh, we had a missionary um, from Amsterdam that was part of the church, a Caucasian guy that spoke perfect Korean, which was awesome. Um, he, uh, I talked to him a little bit. And sometimes you need to grab your mentors, right? You need to be proactive in grabbing your mentors. And I said, hey, you know, what I said today, um, I was talking to myself. I was talking to myself. And he said to me, uh, that was really meaningful. Um, he gave me some advice. He gave me some advice. He said, Roger, I want you to um, not read the Bible for a little bit. You know, I, you know, for class, do it, of course. For sermon prep, uh, for Bible study prep, uh, when you're doing visitation, of course, yeah, read the Bible. But aside from that, I, I want you to not read the Bible. And he told me a story. Um, he thinks it's totally true. I think it's apocryphal. But either way, I get the point. He told me a story that he was in a space uh, where it started pouring rain everywhere except for the circle where he was at. And it was God's way of showing that God is present. And his point was, give yourself an opportunity for God to be shown to you in other ways. And I thought that was so wise, especially, I'm sorry for all you fellow Presbyterians, that God can show your, him, God can show God without the Bible. There are different ways that just we need to be alerted to. And that was very powerful. I encourage you preachers to follow this interpretive tradition and to dig deep into your own trauma and crisis and identity. And I encourage you preachers especially, if you actually have experienced that social displacement, to think about and to walk with Ezra and Nehemiah. And you have an opportunity to teach from this text that people in your congregation don't. Because even though you're socially displaced, your congregation isn't, they all identify with crisis. When I read this, you know, uh, I came to this as a biblical scholar who had already written a monograph and had a PhD. I read this through a place of a very, uh, not parallel, not really the same displacement, but, but reading this text and going inside the space of returning to a land. Uh, it was a kid, and this was seeped in privilege. We lived in a nice apartment, a nice part of Seoul, as I was getting ready to be a professor in there, we spoke the language. We had nationalized health insurance. We had relatives and family. You know, we had we were able to eat fine. But there's something about the identity that brought me to this uh, journey with Ezra and Nehemiah for ten years. Um, and to be here with you and to look at you, uh, I have this agenda not because um, I want to feel good about this research, but this <laughs> text has been super meaningful for me this text with that story, understanding my own identity, uh, it's been great for me. As I think about the experiences of my life and places that I have journeyed with God, if I'm really honest, where God feels very distant, and I wish this upon your congregations, but more than anything, I invite you to uh, dialogue with the God of Ezra Nehemiah for yourselves, for yourselves. Um, it is kind of, yeah, I was going to take a conversation with you, 
But you know what? I'm going to invite uh, Sally, if you have something to say, uh, to close our last convocation. And I'm just going to hang out here a little bit and uh, talk to whoever wants to chat about this. But I am so grateful for this time to engage with you and uh, for the commission that you allow me to give to you, the agenda that you welcome from me to preach from this beautiful text and let yourselves and your communities be transformed by it. So thank you. Thank you.